This is episode number 293, How to Be Honest with Yourself to Get Unstuck with Britt Frank. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. It's so important to remember that, you know, the stuck of our circumstances isn't the end of the story. A lot of times we think we're stuck and it's because we're only seeing the thing that we're stuck in. And again, if you pan out far enough, it's almost always the case that you can get momentum in some area. You know, I may not have gotten my yes from my pitching, but I could build my website and I can work on my social media and there are other places, you know, all the moves count, even the little ones. So I think if people started validating their little wins, those add up really fast when you start saying, yeah, I get to count that. Yes, I get to count all of the things, the big things and the little things. I'm just going to jump right in and tell you about today's guest. So Britt Frank is a therapist, teacher, speaker, and trauma specialist. She focuses her work on helping others who feel stuck. And a lot of us can relate with this feeling. We've felt stuck before in our lives. In fact, there was a yoga instructor that I used to go to that I really enjoyed. And he said to me once, there is a wisdom in being stuck. So I think about that. And sometimes I also think that whenever we're stuck, it just is a time to create more potential energy to move on to the next thing. And it isn't necessarily a bad thing. However, when it does become a bad thing, Britt is here to help. Britt's work developed out of a history of drug addiction, love addiction, borderline personality disorder, depression, and eating disorder, and anxiety. So she has some experience with being stuck and getting out of it. It sounds like a lot, and it is, but her approach to her work comes from a deep understanding of what it feels like to be stuck. Britt tried numerous things to get better and only got worse. And once she was on the path to recovery, she found purpose to dismantle the mental health and motivation myths that keep us stuck, sick, and stressed. Her recently released book, The Science of Stuck, is a research-based toolkit for moving past what's holding you back in life, love, and work. And the thing that impressed me about this book was the breadth of information in it. So it starts off talking about stuck, but it talks about things like family. It talks about things like inner child work that we could be doing and a whole breadth of information that you'll hear about on today's podcast, but I also recommend checking out the book. Britt's goal is to educate, empower, and equip people to transform their most persistent and longstanding patterns of thinking and doing. In this conversation, Britt and I talk about how to get unstuck, celebrate successes, use past experiences to help us now, and so much more. There are a couple of key themes that come up in this podcast, but I'll let you listen to determine what those are. Some key takeaways today are how to actually get out of being stuck and how to celebrate successes using and thinking instead of but thinking. So whenever you say something, do you say something and then use the word but or do you use the word and? We talk about the nine benefits of staying stuck and why we feel safer sometimes whenever we don't make changes. We also talk about what role shame plays in keeping stuck. Some other important things we talked about is the cost-benefit analysis of behaviors, how we can digest past traumas to help us now. We also talked about something that I had never heard of called shadow intelligence. And then we wrapped it up with Britt's favorite five-minute challenges. At the end of each chapter of the book, there are some five-minute challenges that people can do to take what they learn and put them into practice in their lives. Have you subscribed to my weekly newsletter at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter? I work super hard on it and I send it out every single week where I work on an article that I research and a topic has to do with mindset, motivation, productivity, habits, and psychology. I send that out every single Monday. I also have the podcast of the week and a question for you to ponder. So if you are interested, join thousands of other people who have subscribed and are finding value. The open rate is very high for this newsletter. So that is encouraging to me that the stuff that I am writing about is useful and it's working for people. All right, so let's get into today's guest, Britt Frank. Britt, so excited to have you on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So excited to be here. Congratulations on your book. Thank you. It's a book with like pages and words on it. It's very cool. So what was your secret to consistency of writing this? Because consistency, it doesn't matter what you're doing. It seems to be the hardest thing for people. (laughs) Well, writing a book, I don't know. I mean, there's so 
as 20 people, I'm sure there's 20 different journeys. So, you know, up until the point where I actually signed a contract, it wasn't consistent. It was in fits and starts. And I would be super like, I'm going to pitch this to everyone. And then when everyone said, no, it's okay. I'm just not going to think about this for a while. So it was very, you know, whatever. But then once you get the, Hey, we want to publish your book. It, it, it wasn't hard to sit down and write at that point. <laughs> so the contract motivated you, but you said that people said no, and this is really common for lots of authors as well. So how did you stay motivated to keep going and have that resilience when people were telling you no? Yeah. And you know, the motivation question is so interesting because you can get a lot done even when you're unmotivated. And so or when we think we're motivated. So instead of being motivated by, you know, this, it's like, okay, instead of being motivated by finding a yes, I'm going to be motivated by my numbers. So if I was motivated by getting a yes, I would have stopped, but it was like, I'm going to pitch 20 agents today. And so the number 20 was my motivation, not the yes. And that helped me sort of shift out of everyone is telling me no mode into, oh, look, I hit my 20, go me. And then I just kept, I must've pitched, I don't know, 80 or a hundred lit agents before I got a yes. So don't be mm-hmm. motivated by the yes. Cause you'll get very discouraged very quickly. Yeah. The, you set a goal that's based on something within your control of I can pitch 20. I can't control what they're going to say. Exactly. And it's almost always the case with, you know, life and career goal type things that you can find some metric that's within your control. There's for every thousand things we can't control. There's almost always one that we can. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be talking about stuck and being stuck, but whenever you set an outcome goal that is out of your control, sometimes that makes us feel stuck because we feel powerless if we didn't achieve it the first time. Exactly. I would have stayed stuck if it was nobody wants to pick up my book. It was like a little kid, like, will you look at my writing and tell me it's awesome and then give me a book deal, please? You know, it's so important to remember that you know, the stuck of our circumstances isn't the end of the story. A lot of times we think we're stuck and it's because we're only seeing the thing that we're stuck in. And again, if you pan out far enough, it's almost always the case that you can get momentum in some area. You know, I may not have gotten my yes from my pitching, but I could build my website and I can work on my social media and there are other places, you know, all the moves count, even the little ones. So I think if people started validating their little wins, those add up really fast when you start saying, yeah, I get to count that. Yes, I get to count all of the things, the big things and the little things. I love that celebrating small wins, which is something we talk about a lot on this podcast and also just not being focused on one thing and saying, Hey, there's lots of different things that I can be doing to be making progress. Yes. And not, you know, discounting the wins. A lot of times will people will say to my clients will say, I'm just so stuck and I'm unmotivated. And I'm like, okay, you just had a baby and you launched a business and like you did this and you did. And they're like, well, yeah, but so that doesn't count. That doesn't count. Anywhere there's a yes, but there's probably at least one or two wins that you can bank. And it's not just like the sweet sentimental thing, you know, neurologically, when we start focusing on our wins, we get that sense of agency and autonomy and, oh, maybe I can do this. And that begets more of the same thing. So this is true with, you know, psychological health, physical health, all of the things. Yeah. Building that self-efficacy. I think people have a difficult time celebrating their wins and celebrating their successes because they don't know what to do with it. They're like, do I go out to dinner? Like, do I tell somebody about like, how do I celebrate my wins? And I feel dumb celebrating my win if it's something small. So how do you help people decide how to celebrate their wins and their successes? The first thing I do is really take out the, and I love I love woo and I love sentimental things, but take that out of the equation because that's a stumbling block for a lot of people. Celebrating isn't this sentimental, you know, I'm so awesome, affirmative, positive. It's a biohack. When you celebrate, it's physically, it's physiologically impossible to have a brain shut down in a free state and celebrate at the same time, because celebrating is somatic. It's body-based. When you celebrate, you're listening to things, you're eating things, you're jumping up and down, you're yelling. All of those things are actually brain hacks that help you get out of inertia and into momentum. So I tell people, think of celebrating not as something that you deserve, but think of it as more of like a biological hack. So if you're, if you're willing to do it, you're going to trick your brain into doing more of the thing you want it to do. And 
And knowing that there's science to justify celebrating tends to help with the, oh, this is dumb. I don't deserve to do it. It's like, no, it's a brain hack. Do it. And what about people who just reject their successes? Because you can have all these successes, but if you're in a place where you are still staying stuck, it's because partially it could be because you're having successes, but you're still not actually internalizing them or you're just re- saying, well, th- yeah, it, but it's not good enough because of, you know, whatever the reason or because so-and-so said, or yeah. So like, how can people create that space where they're excited about the success where they're not rejecting it? The, it's the curse of the yes, buts. Well, you know, yes, I did this, but it wasn't that, or yeah, I got that, but I didn't get that. And it's really getting ourselves out of binary thinking, you know, celebrating a win in no way minimizes the reality that there's a lot more to do. It no way avoids the you know responsibility of taking the next action. And it's really, there, there's room for both celebrating and holding space for what do we need to do now? It's love yourself where you're at and love yourself enough to do the next thing, but it's not an either, or so if people get hung up on, I can't celebrate because I have so much to do. It's, I am going to celebrate and I have so much to do. So it's really turning those butts into ands. Yes. ands. this, this, and that instead of this, but that. Yeah. So just in your book, you talk about self-talk a few different times. And I, I love, like I've had Ethan Cross, who's a really great self-talk researcher on this podcast, but yeah, changing the butt to an and is something that's really powerful with the way that you can talk about your success. Absolutely. And a lot of people feel guilty, especially in the world that we're in now between everything that's happening everywhere to celebrate feels, it feels wrong. It feels shameful and it doesn't feel like it counts. It's well, how can I celebrate this when so many people in the world are experiencing pain and suffering? And that's that the perspective on privilege and access is good. But again, you keeping yourself in a shame spiral isn't helping anybody anywhere. So again, that and thinking holds space for, I want to celebrate that I nailed my whatever. And I'm going to keep in mind, wow, I am very fortunate that I'm in this situation and not that situation, but it's not a, well, that's, that's happening. Therefore this doesn't count. It's make space for all of the things. And that changes your self-talk from, I don't get to, I don't deserve to, I shouldn't, I must, I ought to, all of that shamey language. We can shift out of that, which allows us to do what we want to do. Yeah, I th- so I think that creating fundamental change can be hard for people because they're afraid of what they might be giving up. There's an identity, even if they don't like that identity, they have to leave something behind. And that is a reason why people just stay in the path that they're in, even if they don't like it. Um, in your book, you have nine benefits to staying stuck. Can you go into those? <laughs> <laughs> so I sort of smushed in the, you know, here's how you get unstuck. We, we sort of have to start with, there are really, really good reasons why we do stay stuck. And again, that's not justification to stay there. I am certainly not saying it's good to be stuck and it's good mm-hmm. to be inert and it's good to never do anything. But the fact is, is there are benefits. You know, if we stay stuck, we don't have to risk social rejection. We don't have to risk financial resources. It's an, there's an energy conservation that happens when we stay small. Is that a good thing? No, but if we take the good and bad out and we just look at, if we're just talking energy input versus energy output, it is easier energetically, physiologically to do nothing than to do the things. So what we need to do is not say, oh, I have no reason for staying stuck. It's no, there are lots of good reasons to stay stuck, but what and there's that and what we want to do is find better reasons to get moving, but to pretend like there's no benefit in, you know, I was a addict of many different varietals for a long time to say that there was no benefit to my drug use is fundamentally inaccurate. I was not happy and it was not an optimal way to live, to have my head over a meth pipe, but that addiction kept me away from pain. It kept me away from some really harsh realities that I didn't want to face. And it kept me focused on something totally outside what I needed to focus on. You know, anytime there's change, even positive change, there's going to be a degree of grief and a degree of loss. And so that that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. But again, we have to start with I'm stuck because right now the benefits of being stuck outweigh the benefits of doing the other things. So let's start there. No shame. Let's just name it. And then we can start working on finding the ants. 
Yeah. And you talk about shame and its role in keeping us stuck. So what role does shame play in keeping us stuck? Mm-hmm. And I like super eternal fangirl grateful to Brene Brown for actually bringing the shame thing to the surface. So now we're all talking about shame, which is great. And knowing that, you know, if shaming yourself works, It would have worked by now. Like it doesn't work. So we can start there. But again, physiologically, when you shame yourself, you're putting your brain into a state of threat. Even though the threat is your own thoughts, threat, a threatened brain is going to shut down or it's going to go into overdrive. And so you'll either feel depressed or anxious or both. And so shaming shuts down physiology, whereas compassionate self-talk again, isn't just a nice thing to do. It's important to shift our actual, you know, we walk around the planet in bodies and our bodies respond to our own thoughts to not have threatening language because threatening language creates an internal survival state of shutdown, which is what we don't want. So no shame. No shame. And you said that there's reasons that people stay stuck because it could be protective or, you know, you, you might be able to avoid something that you're not ready to deal with. But like, how do you know when to move out of that? And you use your example in your life. Like, it's hard to move out of that space. You know, M. Scott Peck, who wrote a book I love called The Road Less Traveled, and I love his definition of mental health. And he said, mental health is a commitment to reality no matter what. Like no matter what mental health is a commitment to reality. And a lot of times when we're stuck, it's because we're lying to ourselves about ourselves. And that's not always the case, you know, assuming that you're in a safe enough environment and you have access to choices. That's what we're talking about here. But if you're lying to yourself about yourself, you're, we, we set ourselves up for failure right off the get-go, right? And so it's really whatever your behavior, your pattern, your habit, your thing is to really get very brave and very honest and say, there's a benefit here, or I wouldn't be doing this. You know, not all behavior is good, but all behavior is functional. And so knowing the function of a behavior is key to changing it. How does somebody pull their head out of the sand though? Because if they're like, I'm afraid to be honest with myself and being honest with yourself can be one of the hardest things, or even just taking responsibility for your emotions and your actions. How, how does somebody actually do that? Cause they might think, yeah, but I, I still can't do it. What do I do? (laughs) You know, it's really hard to lie to yourself day in and day out. If you're, if you're really hesitant to do that type of digging and not everybody has to like mine the depths of the inner psyche (laughs) for like deep, dark secret, you know, it's not always so deep for everybody, but if for whatever reason, you're not wanting to do the work, that's fine. But don't wake up in the morning saying today is the day I'm going to do the thing. Wake up and say today is the day that image preservation is safer to me. And that's what I'm being motivated by. Today is the day I'm choosing not to do that because this matters more. There's only so many days in a row you're going to say that stuff and then not be compelled to take a different action. So wake up in the morning and whatever the thing is that you know damn well you're not going to do, you know, like I know when I wake up and I'm like, I'm going to go run five miles. Like, no, if I'm being honest, I'm not, I'm going to sit on the couch and I'm going to binge watch something and I'm not going to move. Fine. Wake up in the morning on a post-it or on your phone or wherever, right? Today I am more motivated by, you know, conserving energy than I am by fitness goals. Today, I'm more motivated to save money than to invest in my business. If you commit to that kind of radical self-honesty every day, it's amazing how fast you get sick of your own stuff (laughs) and you're like, okay, I'm done. Yeah. I think that I've heard you talk about acceptance a few times already, like accepting where you're at instead of pretending that it's different. And you, you mentioned it earlier. I I can't remember the exact example, but accepting instead of pretending it's not there and then losing trust with yourself by saying you're going to do something and then not doing it. And then repeatedly doing that and then continuing not to accept yourself. And then that puts you into a shame spiral and keeps you stuck. You just described the cycle perfectly, right? It's getting honest with ourselves about ourselves and acceptance is not the same as resignation to not doing anything. You know, the 12 steps are a great example of this. You know, I accept that I have this thing that doesn't mean I'm okay with it. And it doesn't mean I'm going to stay here. I just accept that my truth today is this. And again, if you're not a drug addict, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be that deep you know, Sunday morning, I am not going running. It was a long week. And I had, I'm just making this up and I had kids to take care of. And I had a parent to take care of. I'm more motivated by conserving my energy today than by expending it. So today I'm choosing to do nothing, even though I may want to do things. And then maybe tomorrow it'll be different. 
we, it takes a lot of energy to lie to ourselves about ourselves. So it's amazing how unstuck we can get when with no shame, we just start naming these things as that, you know, make a lie list every day and write down 10 things at the end of the day that you lied to yourself about. And most people, especially when I do this with groups, they're like, I don't lie. I'm not a liar. Like <laughs> these are not big deal. This is not like a, I cheated on my spouse kind of a lie. This is, oh, I'm only going to have one donut when I know I'm having all of them. Or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe I'll stop by the gym after work. It's like, I know I'm not going to do that. Or telling a Starbucks barista, how's your day? My day is great when it's not. Everything mm-hmm. that's not truth is a lie. So no shame. It doesn't mean you need to like vomit on everybody your truth, but be honest with yourself about yourself is a huge key to getting things back in motion. Yeah. Something that my dad used to say when we were growing up, which I thought was really annoying, but has been really powerful in my adult life is I would say, I can't do something. I can't do it. And he said, no, no, no. You're choosing not to do it. Say, I won't do it. And that's more of the acceptance piece of saying like, yeah, I'm being honest. I, I won't go do this thing. It's not that I can't, it's that I won't. And then that kind of gives you the power back too to say, I'm choosing this, whether it's good or bad, that's unrelated, but I'm making a choice. I love that you got the can't to won't speech. I I had never even (laughs) heard that until way later in life, but really changing from this very helpless, powerless language, you know, I can't, it's too much to sometimes things are too much. And legitimately there are things we can't do, but most of the time it's, I won't, I choose not to. And then adding a because, right? Well, why, why are you choosing not to? There's a reason I'm choosing not to, because this is more important to me. And again, that's sort of radical self-honesty and self-awareness with power language. Like I choose and I won't, and I will create so much space for change and choice to happen. So we're talking a lot about behaviors and in your book, you have cost benefit analysis of behaviors. (laughs) Can we like bring that into the fold here? Yeah. I love bringing things from outside the, you know, wellness world in because there's so many amazing tools from the business world and, you know, from all of these other places. So let's just take all the tools and share resources. So doing a cost benefit analysis makes sense financially. If you're running a business or if you're deciding to invest in something, money is not like, I don't speak analysis with finances. I just like the cost benefit analysis, which, you know, just basically means Doing a thing is going to cost you something and it's going to gain you something. Everything that you choose will have a cost and a benefit. And we do ourselves a huge disservice by pretending there's no benefit to our unhealthy quote behaviors. There's always a benefit and there's always a cost. So let's get honest about it. You know, I don't want to start my business. I'm not going to work on my website today. Okay, great. What is the benefit to not doing your website? What is the cost? And eventually, and again, there's only so many days you can actually confront what's true before you're like, okay, I'm done. I am ready to take an action here because I'm tired of hearing myself choose this every single day. And now the benefits are going to outweigh the costs of doing the thing. And it also sounds like the cost benefit analysis can apply to traumas. And in your book, you talk about the importance of using past traumas to help us now. Can you talk about that? Using past traumas to, to to help us now and help us move forward. Yeah. You know, it's really important to know that we don't get over the things that happen to us and people are very often instructed to move on, leave the past in the past and get on with things. And, you know, you have to stay present, but the problem, and that's all great, but the problem is, is the past is present if it's not digested and worked through and metabolized. So, you know, we, take in this information from all of our experiences and we can't get over things. So to pretend like your past is in the past is not in any way reflective of your reality. The past stays present until it's processed. So if you're stuck in the, and again, you don't always have to go to, I had a horrible childhood and my parents were like, (laughs) it's not always that deep, but it's almost always the case that there's a past injury that's slowing you down in the present. So if we can take this idea of getting over it and leave the past in the past behind and go to where are my injuries? What do they need? And what are my choices that allows us, like you said, to use what's happened to us in the past, metabolize it, and then use that as fuel. It doesn't mean that what happens to us is good. And it doesn't mean everything happens for a reason. It just means crap happened. We didn't get a choice about it. So what can we do with it now? What are our choices now? 
I think that with the word trauma too, people think, well, I didn't actually have trauma because they want it to be this like really bad thing. But you actually say that there's a lot of different types of trauma and there's different ways of defining it. So how do you define that? The, the trauma problem has, you know, the whole, like I have trauma, I don't have trauma. Trauma only counts as this. I love, you know, that everyone is sort of talking about trauma now. I also, the word gets tossed around and misused a lot. So the definition that I like comes from somatic experiencing Dr. Peter Levine. And he says that trauma is not about the events that happen to us. Trauma is an internal process. So trauma is how events are metabolized and processed inside of us. So by that definition, anything that is too much or too fast or too soon or not enough can traumatize us. Now, obviously things like war, assault, oppression, abuse, those are really bad things, but that doesn't mean that those are going to, there are people who survive natural disasters and are not traumatized by it. So we all know those are bad things, but trauma can be caused by anything. It can be caused by good things. It doesn't have to be unless I was deployed or in this situation or in that situation, I don't count. If you have a pulse, you have trauma to a degree. It's not like we're all traumatized the same all the time, but trauma is a continuum. It's like food. You know, you're not going to have indigestion from every single thing you eat, but any food has the potential to cause indigestion and trauma is very much the same. Like if I eat contaminated fish, I know I'm going to puke, but I could also get totally sick from eating the same sandwich I've eaten a million times. So trauma is the same, you know, those big, bad, terrible events are like, you know, the food poisoning, but anything can create trauma, which just means your brain is not digesting the information and it's either going to move too fast or it's going to shut down. So if you are a human, you have trauma to a degree. So how do we manage the the digestion piece? <laughs> so, and the, the, that definition tends to upset people sometimes, which I get, you know, well, if you're saying everyone is trauma, then that means nobody has it. So it's like, it doesn't count, but again, it's so important to keep context in mind. Not all trauma is equal, but you know, if my leg is broken, that doesn't make it easier for me to walk knowing someone down the street has two broken legs and then a broken arm. It's attend to your injuries now so you can show up more of yourself, more fully yourself, and then you can go out and do some actual good in the world with all this you know, healing you've had. And so the first step with the trauma issue is recognizing to a degree you have it. You know, It doesn't mean you have to hate your mom and it doesn't mean you have to go to therapy forever. It does mean you have an injury. It's like going to the dentist. You know, if I ignore my toothache, I can ignore it only for so long before it's going to create some real big, very expensive, painful problems. And our emotional injuries are exactly the same. It's like, don't ignore your emotional hygiene, like floss your mind. And that way you don't have to get a root canal later on down the road. So is the way to do that having to get therapy or are there other ways to do that? Fortunately, therapy is not the only way. And it's, you know, and I'm a therapist saying this, and it's not always the best way. Therapy is one tool of, of, you know, not everyone has access to trauma informed therapy. You know, so therapy is great if you can get to it. But if you can't, you know, there are a lot of different avenues for trauma healing. And it really comes down to safety. You know, if you don't have access to a therapist and you don't know where to start, start with the question. What does my body feel like when I'm feeling a little bit less threatened? We all know what stress feels like tight and clenched and constricted. But how often do you ask yourself, what does safety feel like in your body? It's like, huh? I remember the first time my therapist asked me that before I became one. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, where do you feel, you know, safety in your body? And it's like, I have a body. What? <laughs> so really practicing how to notice when we're not, and you don't have to do anything different. Like if you have an, if you have an animal, notice, what does your body feel like as you pet your dog? Notice what does your body feel like as you tuck in a sleepy child who doesn't have a whole lot going on, except they're falling asleep and notice that our body does things when we feel safe. The trauma healing process is about reintroducing the concept of safety and therapy is one of many ways to do that. So it sounds like the somatic experiencing piece is a really important part of working through some emotional healing on your own. It was for me, and you know, because that, you know, again, there's so many different trauma modalities. I loved somatic experiencing because it demystified everything. It's like, mm -hmm. you don't need to be an auto mechanic to drive your car. You don't need deep, deep knowledge of your car to drive it. 
it. It's like, here's just the basics. And if you know the basics, you can, you can drive. And that's kind of amazing. You know, 16 year olds could fly planes because if you learn just enough about the mechanics of a plane, you can fly it. And our brains are very much the same. You, you don't need advanced training to know there are a few mechanisms in our brain, the brake, the gas, the gas tank. And if you know what those are and how to work with them, really powerful transformations suddenly become available. Okay. So it sounds like naming and accepting the thing. Number two, asking, you know, where does this, what does this feel like in my body? What is the opposite feel like in my body? Mm-hmm. What are some other ways to digest your emotional trauma? One of my favorite tools is the choice question, because really trauma can heal only to the degree that we have actual choices and resources and options. So when people say, I just have no choice here, sometimes that's true, but it's almost never the whole truth. And so asking yourself, whatever the thing is that you're dealing with, and you don't have to evaluate whether they're good choices or bad choices. What are my actual choices? I'll use an extreme example. Let's say you're unhappy in a marriage. You know, what are my choices? I could get divorced. I don't want to get divorced. I'm not saying you should, and I'm not saying that you want to. I'm saying, what are your choices? Getting divorced is a choice. Staying together is a choice. Doing therapy is a choice. And so really getting your brain into this state where choice and options are online will spark more insights. And then you'll realize, oh, wait, I actually have more available to me than I'm utilizing. Cool. Maybe I can do one of these things and then make the easiest choice on the list. Like we were saying, the easy wins, they count just as much as the hard ones. So of the 20 choices you have, pick the easiest one and then choose that first. Don't pick the marathon, pick, you know, the 5k. Yeah. So it comes back to finding that sense of autonomy again, by focusing on the things that you can control instead of the things that you can't control, knowing what those choices are, and then making the easiest choice so that it puts you into action instead of just treading water. Exactly. And the 12 step world uses the serenity prayer, which is like, grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't change courage to change the things I can. And then the wisdom to know the difference. And I wish the 12 step model was just taught as a way of living to everybody, because it's unfortunate that you need to be, you know, in the mires of an addiction to go to a 12 step meeting. And that's changing now a little bit, but really knowing and again, it's not a, a yes, but it's a, this sucks. Like this situation really sucks. We're not trying to shine it up. It's awful. And I have a few choices for people, places, thoughts, or things that can help me. And I'm going to pick the easiest one I can grab right now. And that will give me the energy and the bandwidth to do another one. And then another one. And then before you know it, things compound and all of a sudden you're moving again. Yeah, I love that serenity prayer. I, I, I use that in my own life a lot. <laughs> It's so important because it goes back to what's true. A lot of us, myself included, will beat our heads on the wall trying to change the things that we can't, which often include trying to change people in our lives that we can't. And it's, you know, if you can shift your energy from what you absolutely can't do to what you absolutely can do, again, things start to move. And we're not looking for home runs here. We're looking to just get out of being totally buried by overwhelm and this sense of helplessness and stuckness. Yeah. And you, you touched on this earlier. So I'm going to ask you how to manage an overactive sympathetic nervous system and how to manage an overactive parasympathetic, because you talked about being too high up or too far down. I think it was whenever I started asking you about trauma. So you talk about this in your book. A lot of us are do periodically or frequently get stuck in one of these modes. Yes. And again, I like to simplify it. The academic and the clinical world love using big words. It's like, think of your thermostat. A thermostat <laughs> is like, it should be 68 to 72 and it shuts itself on and off. And with trauma, we end up at 120 degrees or negative, you know, negative 50. And so mm -hmm. if we're skewing too hot, that's an overactive sympathetic response, like an overactive mm -hmm. SNS response. I just say your heat's on, it's stuck on and it's too mm -hmm. hot or an overactive parasympathetic response an overactive PNS is just, you know, your air conditioning clicked on and now it's too cold. And mm -hmm. so when you're too cold, you're frozen. And when you're too hot, you're like angry and you're stressed and you're panicking. Uh -huh. So first demystify what's happening. People will say I'm crazy or I'm overreacting. And those are very judgmental, non-accurate words. So step one, if you're stuck in either direction, start naming it. 
this is a nervous system thing. It's not a moral failure and it's not a character defect. It's just my nervous system is either too hot or too cold. Fine. Number one. Number two, what are the people, places, thoughts, or things available to me right now to help me either come down if I'm too hot or to come up if I'm too cold? And a lot of times we don't even get to that because we're too busy shaming ourselves for having our thermostats stuck in the first place. What's wrong with me? I shouldn't feel this way. It's not like anything bad ever happened to me. It's like, okay, let's just cut that story out and go with, you have an overactive nervous system right now and you're stuck in flight. Okay, cool. What's available? What people, places, thoughts, and things do you have at your disposal? Pick one and that will help bring you down a degree and that will help your brain be like, oh, that worked. Okay. Or no, that didn't work. Try something else. And then those little incremental changes over time create big shifts. Yeah. It's like, again, coming back to that autonomy and that control and knowing it, whenever you're feeling very emotionally over, over aroused or under aroused, like these are the things that I can do now uh, and that I have access to that will help shift my state. Yes. Or radically accepting that this state makes sense in context. You know, if I was running a marathon on mile 15, I'm going to be tired. I would never say to you, if you were my coach, (laughs) help me relax. I just need to settle. I just need to relax. And you're like, no girl, you got to keep going. Like you, this is not the time to relax. We're on mile 15. You've got a minute still to go. And instead of helping me relax, you're going to validate that. I feel like crap. You're going to encourage me to keep going. And you're going to remind me why I signed up for this damn thing to begin with. Sometimes our overreactions or our nervous system dysregulation actually makes sense for the situation. And if that's the case, we don't need to gaslight ourselves into feeling calm. We need encouragement to keep going because some fights are, you know, worth suiting up for, and it's important to show up and suit up and keep going when we need to. So we don't want to self-regulate our reality away from us. Some realities are hard and they need champions, not calming. Yeah. I I like this example because it kind of also goes in line with stress and like, we actually need stress and stress can be a really good thing because it also is similar to excitement and you need that, um, increased, you know, respiratory frequency and increased heart rate and, you know, more blood flow to actually put yourself into action. It's not, it wouldn't be good to just be walking around in homeostasis all the time. It would be so boring. Oh my gosh. That's why I don't like the whole idea of a balanced life. It's like, how boring if you're perfectly balanced, there's no excitement, there's no passion, there's no choice Now you can't sustain living on the edges of the extremes, but we want to be able to know that we can go there when we need to, to do what we want to do, knowing we can safely return. And to someone who's been in a nervous system shutdown, the idea of excitement or stress or anything that's going to bring us up is going to feel really terrifying. You know, I had clinical depression for years and even just feeling quote normal for a day was kind of disorienting and really scary. It's like, uh oh, this feels like it's panic. It's like, it's not panic. You just have enough energy to shower, but we really need to relearn what these physiological cues are. A lot of times when we say that we're anxious, what we mean is we're excited or we're sad or we're scared or we're angry. And so the accurate language is so key for behavioral change and for feeling just better in these bodies we walk around in. Yeah. Studying nonviolent communication was really helpful for me in being able to name like an emotion, because a lot of times it's, we're naming a judgment on the emotion, not the emotion itself. We're so full of self-judgment. And again, that judgment, criticism, blame spiral creates either a more stuck nervous system or creates symptoms that we don't want that we're going to have to deal with anyway. So again, an explanation is not a synonym for an excuse. It's not like, Oh, my explanation for why I couldn't go to work today was because my nervous system was in shutdown cool. Oops. My bad. It's like, no, that's the explanation, not an excuse. It's the explanation. So now we can do something about it. So explanation and excuse are not the same thing. You said that, um, whenever somebody is overactive or underactive, they can focus on, and I, I, I'm not going to remember the entire list, but it was like people thoughts. Can you, can you list out those things again? Yeah. People, places, thoughts, and things. So two P's, two T's, you know, what people are my life? What places do I go to? You know, it could be, there's nobody in my life and I'm isolated because I'm in shutdown and I'm in a pandemic. Fine. People are off the list. Fine. What places are available? I can't go anywhere because we can't go anywhere because we're in lockdown. 
okay, fine. Is there a corner of your house that feels a little less threatening, a little less overwhelming things? What around you, you know, like I have like this kinetic sand, I have fidget toys everywhere because those things help my system feel safer. And if you genuinely have no people, no place to go and no things you have what's in your head, then choose some thoughts that aren't lying. That That's not like toxic, positive thinking, but it's like, okay, this sucks. And I'm going to be able to make it to tomorrow. And maybe tomorrow I'll have a different menu of options. So should people make a list of those things like when they're feeling good? Because if you wait until you're feeling off, it's it's hard to access those things. They're really good to do when you're not having a crisis. It's like why it's a fire drill for your psychological health. You know, like all of the airplane drills that we do and fire drills in school, those are there. So it develops into a muscle memory so that when things hit the fan. We're not going, Oh, wait, what was I supposed to do? What were those things I heard about on that podcast? So absolutely make your list of people. You you can call it your emergency trauma list or whatever people, places, thoughts, and things that help you feel safe or safer or a little bit less threatened and grab it when you need it and then use it. I like that you gave some examples of things because I wouldn't know like where to start with that. So you can you can you give some more examples? You mentioned fidget toys and kinetic sand. What are those things? So this kinetic sand is just like this fun, colorful, squishy sand because touching things helps your nervous system ground a little bit. And so anything soft, some people like to click things and there's a bajillion, just Google fidget toys and you'll find mm-hmm. literally every type of tactile sensation that you can think of. Weighted blankets are really good for that. Ice cubes are really good. If you're feeling overwhelmed and panicky, hold on to ice cubes in one hand and pay attention to what it feels like as they melt. Things like that. Anything that's an object around you can be useful for helping your nervous system. It's pretty amazing how many tools we have at our disposal already. Yeah, those are some great examples that I didn't even know about. So I'm excited to learn more. <laughs> I have some fun. One. I mean, anything that's a sensory thing. So things you can touch or hear or whatever, like sucking on a lemon is a fun one. And again, this isn't to gaslight yourself out of your reality. It's not like mm-hmm. sucking on a lemon is suddenly going to make my, you know, my bipolar better, but you know, what we want to do is get our brain out of whatever spiral it's on. So things that are really sour or things that are cold, those are things that can help our nervous system sort of jolt out. Sometimes really it's, it's a people connection that no thing, no place, nothing we do solo is going to work. And in that sense, then we do need people and face-to-face is ideal, but you can get that social connection, nervous system medicine. You can do that online. It's not great and it's not optimal, but if you're really stuck, connect with people online, not in the, you know, scary, crazy way, but just find people to chat with or find people to listen to, or even whatever, get, get a human in front of you in some capacity, if you're not sure where to start, but those things, and those are really helpful too. You actually added a whole chapter on adult friendships. And I think that this is great because it is harder to make friends. Like it's amazing when I watch my like little kids, they're just like, Hey, we're best friends just because we pass each other on the street. Whereas adults are like, I don't even want to ask them to get a coffee. Cause they're going to think I'm weird. Or do I ask them for their phone number? Or like, how do I say, will you be my friend? Um, <laughs> can you talk about like, like myths about adult friendships and how we can better form adult friendships? Yes. We could do a whole series I mean, adult <laughs> friendships. I didn't figure this out until way later in my thirties. They're so important. And again, they're not a luxury. They are a necessity for our mental health, for our physical health. There are studies done. I didn't do them, but people that are very smart did them that not having friends as an adult can be as damaging to your health, to your physical health as smoking cigarettes like what? So starting with the, this isn't just a nice thing to have. This is really important. So that's step one. And then, yeah, it's awkward as hell. And it's like dating it's, but the thing is that (laughs) differentiates adult friendships from kid friendships is we don't have to have besties. We don't have to have the (laughs) be my everything, be my go-to, you know, I'm gonna call you every day and we're going to play every day. You can have different levels of friendships. 
and you can have different kinds of, you can have your, I go do things with them friends. You can have the, I talk to you once a year, but that once a year just fills my soul. And that like gets me through to when I I'll see you again and taking the pressure off of adult friendships to be all of the things it's very like, it's very much like intimacy and dating. It's, you know, what is this friend available? What realistically I may want to see them every day, but life is busy. So if we see each other once every three months, cool. Like that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And you get to have boundaries and different levels of boundaries with your different friends. But it's so funny, all of the adults I treat and everyone I've ever met says the same thing. Friends sound like they'd be really great. And I don't know how to do it. I'm like, we all just need to start talking to each other. And I've had people say to me, oh my God, can we be friends? And I've said it to other people like, oh my God, you're really cool. This sounds super dorky, but I want to be your friends. And you- I literally ask people to be my friend. I like, yes. it's kind of a joke, but I'm like, Hey, do you want to be friends? Cause like, but I think that one of the reasons that adults are afraid to create friendships is because it requires vulnerability. Like when you even ask somebody, will you be my friend? Now you're setting yourself up for rejection. Mm-hmm. And even if that person says, yes, you can't, you don't just automatically be friends. You have to create experiences. You have to be able mm-hmm. to like talk about something that's more than the weather to make something different between a friendship and just like an acquaintance of some or someone you just talked to in line at the grocery store. Exactly. And it's so interesting with the vulnerability question to know that you actually don't have to go level 10 vulnerability. Like Building a friendship doesn't require you to just like take all of your armor off. (laughs) Is it scary to even approach someone? Yes. But what's the alternative? You know, the alternative to like incremental vulnerability is isolation. And that's not good for our health. And that's, we know that that's not sustainable. So that helps with the, why do I bother doing it? But you don't have to share your deepest, darkest secrets right off the bat with an adult friend. You can start really surface and surface level conversations and surface level friendships get a really bad reputation, but that's a really safe place to start. Like you don't learn to swim in the deep end of the pool unless you have a parent who tosses you in and that's a whole nother issue. But, you know, you can start with shallow friendships that are very, very surface level, get your skills built up there and then maybe like shoot a little bit more information over. I had a wonderful counselor mentor who said with friendships, you don't drive a 20 ton truck over a five ton bridge. So you you can slowly build the relational bridge before you start sharing your deep, dark secrets. So shallow friendships are totally, they count too. Everything counts. That's where it starts. Exactly. Yeah. There's a book I'll recommend to people. It's called Captivate by Vanessa Van Edwards. And if you feel like you're awkward and you don't know, even know like what to say to people, Vanessa, she's been a podcast guest. She says like, I'm a recovering awkward person. And she actually has conversation starters in her book. So questions that you can ask, whether it's like at a work function or talking to your neighbor, if you feel uncomfortable and you don't know what to say, like it'll actually create more depth in relationship and actually get people excited to talk about things instead of like, what do you do for work? Like it's, it's more interesting things to talk about. I love that so much. Well, I'm, you know, super introverted. So I would say you don't even have to start by talking to humans. Cause I would never have talked to humans like with words, no way you can start digital. Like I would creep around on people on Instagram that I thought were cool. Yeah. And I would like, like some of their things. And then maybe I'd comment and then eventually I would message them. And I have built really powerful deep, like soulful friendships by creeping around people's social media and then slowly sending them messages. There's absolutely nothing that doesn't count about doing it that way. If you're too scared to talk to people, message them, you know, you can start as slow as you need to. Thanks for pointing out that social media and online can be a good place to build connection because it gets such a bad rap a lot of the time, but there are benefits to it too. You know, people can suck in person just as easily as they can (laughs) suck digitally. So the whole online friends don't count is a bunch of crap. You know, it's what are you showing up as? Are you showing up authentically? I could be totally full of crap in person and I could be really authentic online and you can swap them. So anyone who says social media friends don't count, like I would love to have that conversation because they do if you show up authentically vulnerably and with boundaries. Of course they count. They, it all any human connection counts. I would rather be in person with my friends, but I have wonderful friends who I've never ever spent physical time with and it, we've only ever existed digitally. And that's fine. It counts too. 
That's super funny. I have this friend. Um, I did this health coaching program at Vanderbilt University and I made some great friends there. And there's like, I've talked to them on video. I've talked to them on the phone. We've talked online, but I've still never met them. And it's been years. And it's just kind of like, it's just, we're thinking about this. Like we've still have never actually met in person, but I feel like we're really good friends because those count. Those absolutely count. And, you know, especially, and I'm not saying that everything happens for a reason because that's crap too, but with the pandemic turning us really into this Zoom global, you know, digital type of world, it's it's easier than ever to really find people that are into what you're into online. And if you're not sure what you're into, there are people who are not sure what they're into online. And <laughs> it's a big world. And there is somebody that you will have the option of connecting with if you have some skills and some tools and some willingness. So I'm going to shift gears here. There was something that I hadn't really thought of or heard of before in your book and it's shadow intelligence. Can you talk about that? Yes. It's like, I know I shouldn't have favorites because all the chapters are like my children, but I really love shadow work so, so much. And shadow work is a very fancy way of saying, getting honest with yourself about yourself. So those icky thoughts that we all think from time to time, the like cringy, like, oh my God, if anyone ever heard what I was thinking, they would, they would just like, no bad. Thank God thoughts are not audible. We all have them. And we all have parts of our personalities that we would rather shove in a closet. You know, we have parts of ourselves that are not ideal that we think we hate. And all of that stuff is information. And there are gifts to be found from even the parts of ourselves that we think we don't like, you know, embedded in every bad quality is an important piece of information. Envy is a great example. You know, I hate the part of myself that compares myself to everybody online. And I hate that I do that. It's like, okay, comparison is not helpful, but envy points to desire. How am I supposed to know what my desires are if I'm not in some way leaning into this other thing? So envy is not an ideal expression of it, but envy points towards desire. Anger points towards injustice. And it's almost always the parts of ourselves we think we hate that are actually trying to help us attend to an injury or see a truth that needs to be grieved and worked through or whatever. There are no bad parts of our personalities. Yeah. There's this book that's out that's I'm working on reading called the power. I think it's called the power of regret by Daniel Pink. And it also is like, yeah, your regrets can give you a lot of great insight and information about yourself and your life. And it proves you're not a sociopath. Like how marvelous, like the fact that you have a regret means that you are actually, you care enough to have regret. And again, it doesn't mean we want to stay wallowing in regret and in envy and all of the things, but these are really important pieces of information to help us cultivate who we are, what we're about and what we want. Yeah. And I also love how things like anger or envy can inform you about your, inform you about your values. Because a lot of times we think about, like you hear about values all the time, but people may never have defined them before on paper. And it might be difficult to define what your values are, or they might ask other people, Hey, what are my values? But if you look at the things that piss you off, that can tell you what what some of those values are that are being offended or, or being trampled on. And yes, absolutely. And one of my favorite pieces of shadow, like my favorite shadow work tool, this one's scary, but if you're not sure, you know, what you're about, look at your browser history. That's a shadow place to go. Cause I would rather, you know, I have no problem disclosing my drug addiction, but I'll be damned if anyone's going to see my browser history, because <laughs> where we go when we're stressed or when we're distracted or when we're dissociated isn't always, you know, the places we want to share, but again, with no shame, get really honest with yourself about yourself. You know, where are you going on the internet rabbit holes? That's information. No shame. Let's just talk about, Hey, there's a reason that you're watching like nine hours of this particular influencer and that you've now stalked every single interview they've ever done and read every word they've ever written. It's like, that's really important information. And so when you get honest with yourself about yourself, you can find access to all of these amazing gifts, like creativity and innovation and grit and passion and all of these things that were not available to you because they were hiding in the shadows. So I love it. It's almost like the me searches research. Yes. I have not heard that. I love that so much. Yeah. A lot of uh, psychologists I hear, they always, I mean, a lot of the work I do is to say it's like, it's, it's me search, but, uh, and then I'm sharing it with people, (laughs) 
But yeah, a lot of psychologists will talk about that. Like they got into like their area of practice because of me search. And then it becomes like their job because they're like, this is so powerful and I want to help other people. That's so true. That's how it worked for me. I love yeah. that so much. But we're so scared to get honest with ourselves because of the shame problem. It's like, yeah. I don't want to admit that I, me personally, I didn't want to admit that I was full of envy and anger and all of these other things. But it's like, when you look at these qualities with self-compassion, you can start to heal them. They come from a, an injury. And again, not all behavior is acceptable, but all, you know, behavior has an identifiable source and it's on me to look at it so I can heal it. So I can stop doing that suboptimal things and start doing the better things for me and for the people that I care about. I also think that confidence comes from that honesty and vulnerability with yourself. And even if you're doing it with others, which again, you don't have to be vulnerable with others telling them all these things. Like I feel I, you know, I was envious of so-and-so, but even just being honest with yourself can help build that confidence because it makes it not so bad. Um, but I've, I found for me though, that really like being able to share even with one person, or maybe it's with my entire audience that people that like follow my podcast or whatever, that if I say, I feel shame about this thing, I feel envious because of this, it it actually makes it not seem like not so big of a deal anymore. Yes. It diffuses, And again, you have to do that in a safe enough place, safe enough people that you're not going to get your ass handed to you for doing it. Yeah. It's amazing how transparency in a safe, safe enough space with the right people can diffuse even the most intense shame bomb and shame can almost never be dissolved in isolation. It usually takes another person to normalize or to hold space for, or to witness whatever the thing is that we're feeling shame about to neutralize it. But there's no corner of the shame cave that can't be neutralized in the presence of a safe enough person. And there goes that, that people part again, making sure that you have friends or family that you have in your corner which I know really sucks and is complicated and scary. So make it less complicated and less scary by putting it online or going super, super, super shallow. I'm all about practicing friendships in a shallow way. There's nothing wrong or not good about that. Like go get the skills there. So then you can swim deep. Your book has a lot of five minute challenges at the end of each chapter, which I think are really fun because you can read all the, all you want or listen to speeches all you want, but taking action is something that you need to do. Um, so five minutes is digestible and kind of puts you into action whenever you learn something, what are one or two of your favorite five minute challenges from the book? So it's so important to me because I have read a bajillion self-help books and I've gotten to the exercises and I'm like, I'm not going to do this. I'm not even going to read them because who has that kind of time? So it was so important to me to really create exercises that can actually be done in 300 seconds or less, because (laughs) otherwise we go into freeze or we go into overwhelm and we shut down and whatever. And so there's so, I love all my exercises. Um, One of them (laughs) is to do a cost benefit analysis and to really get honest with pick one thing and just ask yourself real quick, just spitball, just bullet. What are four benefits to this behavior? And what are four things it's costing you? So that's one. Another one is to make a lie list. You know, at the end of the day, you should have at least 10 things on there. If I was your therapist, I'd say do 30. But since it's a five minute challenge, just come up with 10. And if you can't come up with 10, that's just a sign that that's might not be your exercise to start with, that there's some shadow work to do. So like, okay, (laughs) fine. Make a list of people, places, thoughts, and things that can help you when you're feeling whatever it is that you don't want to be feeling. And then one of my favorites is to take a gratitude list and then add an anger list to it. Cause gratitude list can turn very quickly into that toxic positive place. Like I'm so grateful. I have no right to my pain. It's like on one side of piece of paper, write down 10 things that you're grateful for on the other side, write down 10 legitimate things that you're pissed about or sad about or whatever. And that will help you find that. And that we were talking about where it's mm-hmm. yes, this, and this I can hold space for gratitude and pain. I can hold space for celebration and needing to do more self-inquiry and more work. That and is really powerful. So those are a few. Yeah. I love the, like the anger sadness list because a lot of us resist those feelings because we're, it's like, it's not acceptable to feel that way. And this theme of acceptance and honesty has been wound throughout this entire podcast and is so important. So I'm glad that you brought that up too. 
It was so infuriating to me to re- to be like, it's that simple. You know, it's not easy. This, none, none of this stuff is easy. Wellness and healing and mental health isn't easy, but this tool is not rocket science. Like getting honest is a very difficult thing to do, but the idea is not that hard. I'm like, really? It comes down to after all this school and all this training and all this therapy, it's if I'm honest with myself about myself and I have choices, I can heal. It's like, that was super awesome and horrifying. I'm like, wow, I made it really complicated. Our pain is complex, but the healing process doesn't have to be. So where can people, well, I guess we haven't even said the name of the book, but where can people find your book and, and follow you and, and be your bestie, even if it, you're, even though adults don't have to have besties, but they want to be your bestie online, <laughs> where, can, where can they find you? So funny. So the book is called The Science of Stuck and you can find me on Instagram. It's just my name at Britt Frank, B-R-I-T-T. Britt has two T's, F-R-A-N-K. Um, you can buy the book wherever, wherever books are, wherever books are sold. And um, you can find me on the website at scienceofstuck.com. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for sharing all of your knowledge and coming on the show. And I'm excited for people to check out your book. Thank you so much. This is so much fun. I hope you enjoyed that episode that I recorded with Britt Frank. I got a lot out of it and I hope you learned some new things too. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show as that will help it find others. And hopefully they'll find some value in their lives from it too. Thanks so much for being here. I know that there are tons of podcasts out there and there's only so much bandwidth in our brains. So the fact that you're listening to the show means the world to me. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. I'll see you next week.